0: I'm obviously very biased as a as a trained scientist, but I think DSign it's one of the best or better use cases of Web three technology. To paraphrase a quote from uh, Susanna Harris on, "Oh, I get design now. It's essentially how science is supposed to work," and I just love that as as an explanation for the space. It's brought forth a lot of conversations around existing incentive structures and how those are broken and how those are failing the system and allowing us to start to think creatively about how to fix those incentive structures.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. On this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, and entrepreneurs and we speak about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world we live. I'm Simone Cicero, and today I'm alone, unusually, but I have a very special guest that will lead us through, uh, I would say, non-usual exploration space for us at the podcast, uh, which is uh, uh, decentralized science. Today with me, we have Jocelyn Pearl. Uh, Jocelyn is a PhD from the molecular and cellular biology uh, program at the University of Washington, besides being a scientist, uh, she is also a podcaster and company builder. Uh, indeed, the uh, Jocelyn Ossu podcast, the Ultra Rare podcast, uh, which explores the intersection of science and Web 3, and uh, the Lady Scientists podcast, where uh, she features uh, diverse and, and far-ranging conversations with scientists. Uh, Jocelyn is also actively involved in the uh, LabDAO, which uh, she co-founded. That is an open community-run network of laboratories accelerating the progress in life sciences. And uh, she's also the lead compiler of the uh, Wiki, which is a place where she keeps an eye on the industry evolution. And uh, uh, she also writes on many very important outlets. Uh, She had some very interesting articles coming up uh, recently on Not Boring, but also uh, ACCZ uh, blog. So first of all, uh, Jocelyn, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Since the topic is a bit unfamiliar for the people probably in our listening uh, audience, I would ask you to kindly maybe give a little bit of uh, definition, I would say, Of what uh, DSI is uh, and probably also how this has uh, changed uh, lately, because you follow this space from the very onset and uh, you are, uh, I would say, fairly at the center of this. So maybe you can really help us to understand why this is important and what we're talking about quickly before we dive into some vertical uh, questions.
0: Absolutely. DSI or decentralized science. Uh, Is kind of a play on the acronym DeFi, which was decentralized finance, and expands on some of the principles of blockchain technology. So, for instance, the idea that we can now decentralize assets, but in the science community where there's traditionally been a lot of centralization and gatekeeping, it explores the ability to now have decentralized networks that are um, working towards common goals. There's obviously additional layers of complexity there, but in general, I like to survey the space as different groups, projects, DAOs that are embracing the principles of decentralization and blockchain technology.
1: When we speak about Web three and blockchain, very often, you know, we get these um, knee-jerk reaction. You know, the people saying you know, this is a technology in search for use case. Uh, You know, I don't like when we start from the technology and and so on. But I think, you know, now that I'm also diving into the space a little bit from some personal projects, I think uh, in science there is such a clear use case for decentralization and Web3 in general that is related to these tragedies of, I would say, misaligned incentives around science Between uh, the scientists, the companies that create the you know the the products, and the adopters, the users of the products. So, is it something that you also feel as the main, the leading use case for for decentralized science to realign all incentives around uh, good science, or maybe you can also mention other general patterns of use cases that uh, you see interesting from the perspective of uh, how decentralization can help solve them.
0: Yeah, I think it, to me, and I'm obviously very biased as a, as a trained scientist, but I think it's one of the best or better use cases of Web3 technology. To paraphrase a quote from uh, Susanna Harris on, Oh, I get DSi now. It's essentially how science is supposed to work. And I just love that as, as an explanation for the space. It's brought forth a lot of conversations around existing incentive structures and how those are broken and how those are failing the system and allowing us to start to think creatively about how to fix those incentive structures. Because at the end of the day, we're people and we're motivated by incentives. And hopefully, these new conversations and a lot of the, the builders in this space Will create new systems that work a little bit better than the existing kind of Web2 standards. There's a few areas we can dive into where that makes a lot of sense. Like scientific publishing, for one, has traditionally been controlled and regulated by these big corporations that tend to be very extractive of the research communities. Where all of the researchers are paying these corporations to publish their science, and then it's living behind paywalls. And the reviewers who are putting in quite a bit of work to review these publications through the peer review process are also not supported for their time and effort. And so, some of the conversations within the DSI space and some of the projects that are forming are hoping to realign incentives. Within that system, so that everyone is better supported in what they're contributing
1: it's interesting because you say web two alternatives, but in reality, maybe when we speak about science, we deal with institutions that uh, they are more industrial than web two, and also there is uh, quite a lot of uh, public bodies. When I think about universities uh, e- even we're talking about sometimes and if I think about Italy, for example, about institutions that date back maybe you know something like a thousand years, and uh, it's not really just about Web two in in decentralized science. It's really about you know rethinking a model that sits there since probably two hundred years at least. And and also when we think about decentralized science, we tend to think a lot about healthcare, but maybe there are also other spaces that uh, normally are less considered. So when you think about the rubber hitting the road, really in decentralized science, and so dealing with real institutions, what are the major gatekeepers and the major institutions that are supposed to be transformed by these uh, practices and uh, maybe the new ones that uh, you believe may come up, especially as we can't really transform some of these incumbents? What's what's your feeling?
0: One of the things I've been thinking about is how we as the scientific community, our, our whole ecosystem changes quickly. Like 20 years ago, the kind of hub of molecular biology was Caltech, for instance, and that's changed in 20 years. And there's been this these cycles of like institutional hubs for different areas of research that really form around people gravitating to these specific focal points. So traditionally, there have been particular locations where people form and aggregate because they want to be enriched by their peers. They want to be able to have conversations and critique each other. And that's part of how discovery happens, right? That's kind of part of the scientific process. So I think one of the interesting things that's happening now and that I'm certainly hopeful for the space of Desai is that we're now seeing these hubs of collective intelligence and conversation happening within some of these DAO communities, for instance. It's almost like we've taken this concept of the Reddit forum, but now we have these discord servers for now that's kind of our medium where scientists and and different people can aggregate and start to have the types of conversations that in the past you know happened in the hallway at universities but the the gatekeeping as far as having to live in boston and having to be you know a member of that a uh, university committee to be able to have those conversations doesn't exist for these communities right like we use the term permissionless permissionlessness which i really hate that term but it's essentially that there's now a lower barrier of entry to participate in these types of scientific communities which i think is really thrilling and exciting because you see so many different curious minds coming in and wanting to participate i mean we have people who are still in high school people who are in college all the way up to people who are retired and they, and they still want to be a part of these types of conversations.
1: Certainly, you know, makes things more uh, blurred, right? So for example, it doesn't count very much uh, if you are retired or not. It doesn't count very much if you are here or there. Uh, it doesn't count, I guess, also the traditional separation that maybe uh, we formerly used to have around disciplines—I guess there is a lot of uh, more overlap between disciplines in, in design, or at least you know people with capabilities can play in different spaces. So as we transition from uh, a model of science that is uh, largely dominated by, on one hand, public bodies, especially if I think about Europe, maybe I'm less familiar with the U.S. For example, large universities funded by government programs and uh, private corporations that are maybe involved in, I don't know, drug discovery or other uh, things and such, that into a space where there is much more diversity. If you want, it's much more important. The individual, right? The, the entrepreneurial individual that can create teams and, and and interact around projects. So what what is the potential anti, anti-pattern that you see Uh, What are the potential, uh, I would say, uh, drawbacks as we move out of uh, the current institutional setting of uh, science into this entrepreneurial, independent, uncoordinated version of science that uh, decentralized science uh, may represent?
0: We've kind of lived in a system where we have these two buckets, essentially. We have public versus private, privately funded research or science. And within the publicly funded, as you pointed out, the current research spending, for the most part, goes to the university-centric model of research, which produces a very particular type of science that's heavily motivated by publication record, that's tied to a given person's career and um, their ascension, you know, within their career. And they're seeking to develop the type of science that's going to be novel and can be published in things like Nature Science Cell. You know, those are the kind of top tier scientific journals that people are heavily motivated to publish in. Um, and then on the private side and the industry side, Again, there's a very particular type of research within the life science space motivated by drug development and the ability to develop something that can be, for instance, approved by the FDA and treat a reasonably sized patient population. So we've now created a system where there are two heavily incentivized motivation systems that are going to produce a very particular type of output. And I think there's so much more out there, both from like a process perspective and organization perspective, and also an output perspective that uh, we as scientists are naturally interested in pursuing and understanding, understanding the world. And I think there's so much potential, you know, for instance, that we've seen from places like amateur scientists or amateur technologists that could be the the location of the next big discovery that advances human progress. So I'm particularly interested in how places like DAO's might allow for the advancement of of discovery over the next couple of decades at least hopefully and whether or not it's like a DAO per se or a a community of scientists that lives online i'm kind of i don't care either way but but i am interested in how these communities might uh might advance things now as far as the drawbacks i think was your original question yeah there's certainly organizational drawbacks to A decentralized community like a DAO. So it's supposed to exist kind of in contrast to our traditional hierarchical corporation structure, right? Where you have almost too much management, right? Like the level of management increases as you get higher into the organization. And I think there's pros and cons to, to both of these styles of organization. I'm not like an organization scientist by any means. There's plenty of people out there who study these things. I'll call out, there's a book called Reinventing Organizations that that gets into some of this. And there's plenty of groups that are studying how DAOs operate and uh, function and are trying to put together some of the learnings from Many many DAO organizations, so that we can better understand how to to run and operate these types of orgs. So Talent DAO is one, and uh, the Scarf Forum. It's a smart contract research forum that was partly started by someone interested in the co op structure. So there's plenty of people who are really digging into this, like and doing hardcore research, collecting data on DAOs, for instance. But in general, I think. Your communities are going to rely on people who are intrinsically motivated, who are willing to be flexible and adapt to new ways of working. And unfortunately, right now, similar to the open source software community, these are people who can spend a lot of time online. They have the type of free time to work in these communities, and it kind of lends itself to a particular type of person. So I'm interested in how we expand that further and allow more people to come into this space. For instance, like more women to work in the space at its current state is very um, male-dominated. Like
1: everything else, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it feels like when you speak and when I read some of the things that that you've wrote, uh, it seems like, um, let's say, the inefficiencies and the bureaucracies existing in the traditional science space. Uh, kind of created this uh, situation where we tend to, to develop solutions, uh, only solutions that have a large scale applicability, I would say. And of course, this is a, a problem that is much more tangible in healthcare, which is just, as I said before, it's just one of the phases of decentralized science and science in general. But especially if we think about healthcare, you know, that also. there's always been this debate about, for example, creating uh, a cure for rare diseases, for example, right? That is something that normally uh, really doesn't happen because you don't have this large-scale applicability. I feel like uh, by reducing these um, bureaucratic um, frictions that exist in science, uh, we may be able to unlock... Uh, uh, some kind of niche uh, opportunities, uh, or at least making it possible uh, to work more easily with the new types of institutions. I would say, for example, community founded uh, organizations or even grants for scientists that are generated by a much smaller uh, set of uh, stakeholders. Uh, so we can be able to work on more niche uh, scientific problems with respect to the existing incumbent structure that the science relies upon, and um, on one hand, I would like to see if you have some maybe some uh, anecdotal examples of how uh, if you agree uh, how this is happening. and mm-hmm. also another another aspect that i that I wanted to bring up for you is uh, what does it mean from the perspective of uh, people trusting science? Because uh, my impression is that people don't just trust science as a mindset, as an approach, as a the scientific mo- methods, uh, you know, uh, but trust the science in terms of all the institutional structure uh, that science is normally related with. So is it the possibility that, yes, we unlock more niche opportunities, but then on the other side, uh, these kind of solutions will be Harder to trust?
0: Yeah. So to get into the first question, this is actually something Elliot Hirschberg and I recently wrote about in Not Boring. We dug in a little bit to the history of kind of the scientific structure and funding in the United States, which was primarily founded by Vannevar Bush around 1945. And in the beginning, The government was able to finance science through grants around that time very quickly. But, you know, almost as a law of government and organizations, as they move along over the course of time, they become more bureaucratic. And so what we see now is that the NIH and the primary grant funding mechanism, which finances The NIH at least finances around $50 billion worth of research each year and is commonly described as the 800-pound gorilla in the room, is also a very bureaucratic and slow-moving system. You know, grants suck up an estimated 40% of researchers' time, and they primarily go to the more established PIs or principal investigators. And for young investigators who are typically doing the, the riskier and more interesting science, it's a lot harder to access that funding and, and, and get those grants. And also the, the actual funding over time has decreased at, when you adjust for inflation. So it's a very competitive system. It's very consensus driven. Like what these grant committees are funding is very consensus driven. And it sucks up a lot of time that could be going to the actual science, right? So some of the experiments in this space, one of them in particular is fast grants. So this was something a group explored during the pandemic when they felt like, oh, the government is not really catching up to the need of the type of research we need to, to finance during this global pandemic. So we're going to put out uh, a call for grants. We're going to review them very quickly. And we're going to wire money in 48 hours. And those FAST grants financed quite a bit of important research uh, during the pandemic. And that's a model that multiple organizations are exploring. There's also impetus grants for longevity research that's uh, led by a lot of um a teal fellow, and uh, yeah, there's. There, I'm seeing you know more and more people exploring that that model.
1: What can we tokenize? So I'm thinking of, for example, tokenizing intellectual property, uh, tokenizing the uh, potential returns from the creation of a new uh, science-based uh, solution. So how do you see that uh, democracy Element element uh, really uh, uh, playing out in terms of uh, you know access to intellectual property, ac- access to revenues, access to governance. Uh, what is really that we are going to unbundle of the existing uh, organizational infrastructure and uh, transform it uh, uh, in the process uh, to to do different science?
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think there's kind of two different schools of thought there. There's the school of thought that intellectual property continues to be important in similar ways to pre-existing organizations and I mean like it's something that like your org should be able to own and profit off of and then there's a school of thought that's like a little bit more rogue of like IP or intellectual property in the in the sense that we've normally dealt with it should be abandoned or reformed and we need to find ways to kind of subvert the traditional IP system so that we can advance things like drug development for public good so there's a couple there's a couple projects like In that second bucket, I'll just call out crowdfunded cures as one of them where, you know, they're interested in drugs like supplements, for instance, or psychedelics that might not be developed from a clinical trial perspective by traditional corporations because they can't own the IP around, you know, vitamin D, for instance. But it would still be a, a net benefit to society to be able to evaluate these things within a clinical trial. So Crowdfunded Cures, per the name, is interested in crowdfunding those types of clinical trials, which I, I find really compelling. And we could get into you know, more around IP and how that might be holding us back further drug development. Do you
1: see also the possibility that... Uh... Existing organizations that maybe are involved into um, ancillary elements uh, that uh, rely on the discoveries in science for the execution of the business. Uh, Someone in uh, doing white goods uh, relying on some particular new technology uh, or maybe somebody doing, uh, again, healthcare relying on certain specific type of uh, pharmaceuticals. Do you envision also the possibility that uh, this AI uh, shortens the distance between business and scientists? So in a way that makes it easier for companies to uh, fund and integrate rapidly uh, science into their products in a way that is sim- simply not possible today because just you know, scientists, I mean, I never heard about uh, freelance scientists so far. You know, it's very rare you know, as an idea. Do you think uh, this is uh, something that we can also expect, uh, a, a way, you know, these uh, effects that this eye can have of shortening the distance between business and, and, and science?
0: I'm certainly excited by the idea that a scientist could operate from anywhere. You know, like they, a trained trained scientist could be living in, you know, rural America or or Italy and be contributing to a project somehow. Maybe they have a garage lab, maybe they don't. I love the idea that these communities could form online and be able to go after problems in new ways and maybe things that that people aren't necessarily um, focused on within a university or within within, uh, a corporation. Well, I mean, kind of in a parallel track to what's been happening in this d space is there's been an expansion in the last couple of years on the founder-led biotech community. Um that's been kind of pioneered by a few people. I'll just call out Petri Pillar and um this this organization called Will be basically helping to provide tools to scientists, people with PhDs, postdocs who are doing the research and giving them the business tools to lead their science within a a startup or a corporation setting. I think it's really exciting and compelling because we previously had a much more gatekept system where you had to be a part of this community for many decades before you were really allowed to lead a company within the biotech sector. And also, it was very extractive in the sense that, unlike in tech, where you could start a company and the founders would have a decent ch- chunk of equity within the science sector, that wasn't the case. Like the scientists who were actually contributing to the formation of these companies, I mean, as little as like the last decade wouldn't get much equity if, if at all, like they would get like stock options, but they wouldn't have, you know, any of that kind of common stock. And so they didn't really like benefit off of their own science and their own intellectual property. Right. It was very extractive. So I think that's one of the things, the themes of DeSci and of DeFi as well is like, retooling ownership, right, and allowing the people who are putting into the system to also co-own that intellectual property, which just makes sense and should be the way that it is, right?
1: Certainly have some good examples of companies that have embedded the entrepreneurial spirit into the way they produce uh, science and solutions. You know, for example, I'm thinking of uh, companies like Flagship Pioneering, for example, right, that is famous for having these uh, Kind of internal venture builder that uh, ended up in creating Moderna recently. So uh, it seems that uh, you know the idea of the entrepreneur scientist is taking hold. You know, I'm, I'm also thinking about the initiative from NFX, the biotech uh, initiative yep. from NFX.
0: Yeah, NFX is a good one and flagship certainly. But it, you have to remember those are all kind of like new. That model, I think, is either it was previously unique in a sense. Or it it just like it's becoming more in style these days and and they're competing with each other for the same founders, right? So what you're seeing is like a lot of these venture organizations kind of challenging each other to work in public more, share more resources, develop things for the founders and catering to the founders themselves uh, and supporting them in different ways whether that be podcasts or articles or networks for recruiting talent. So, yeah, it's kind of exciting to see that like competitive ecosystem creating more tooling for the founders. I think that's exciting. In
1: software development, we have seen uh, but not not only in software development, I would say also in creative industries more in general. We have seen uh, something that uh, Lee Jin recently called uh, the unbundling of the Fortis bundle, right? So you can basically access lots of tools, you know, for doing marketing, for doing customer engagement. Maybe this is not really this side, but it's more like how science uh, infrastructure is being transformed. But do you see also this happening from the perspective of uh, making science infrastructure uh, more accessible to si- to smaller groups of scientists and teams? Uh, in a way that they have more leverage, like the same amount of leverage we can now be familiar in software, for example, where a very small team can create a multi-million dollar business just because they can essentially program infrastructures, right? So is this is something similar happening in science, with uh, uh, you know, Lab is a good example, but you know, more in general. How is the science infrastructure being democratized, unbundled, and made available as a utility? You spoke about these scientists uh, working from you know rural America, rural U.S. Uh, is this really possible now? Is this infrastructure being unbundled and made available? Or there's still a lot, uh, to, lot of work to do on this uh, point of view?
0: Yeah, it's definitely nowhere near the level of unbounding that tech has, certainly. Um, Because so much of science still relies on physical lab space and not everybody is able to have that, right? But we're seeing this expansion of companies that are being called tech bio that are essentially tech companies that are trying to build out those tools for scientists so one company that I'm excited about right now is called SciSpot, and they're expanding the tool of having essentially, you know a database for your science, being able to track things in an organized fashion. that I think that's really compelling. There's other, you know the rise of electronic lab notebooks was huge for science. so uh, companies like Benchling, where now scientists can manage and track experiments online from the browser, that has been huge for allowing this unbounding of science. Um and there's a number of other tools, but it has been kind of lacking. I think building software for scientists is generally hard because science happens in so many different ways. So how do you modularize that? But yeah, LabDAO certainly were hopeful to Build out a marketplace for scientists online. Another prominent example is Science Exchange, which basically allowed companies to use a single contract to work with contract research organizations or CROs, and really, you know, facilitated that type of work and that network. Because traditionally, putting these contracts in place is the limiting factor. Um, it takes a lot of time to set up research contracts between organizations. So um, that's a really powerful platform that, that allowed for uh, even more ease of use of, of CROs. But yeah, I think it's, it's still you know catching up to the tech world. We certainly don't have an AWS of science yet, but I think a lot of really smart people are, are working towards that goal.
1: I think you mentioned something super important, which is collaboration between different institutions. I'm very convinced that uh, one of the Web3 implications and impacts on industries in general is to make uh, collaboration much more possible, like something much easier. Making affordances for collaboration right, Uh, versus competition. But one thing that I think we're still really behind the schedule with Web3 is what I call ontological convergence. Essentially, when we speak about anything, uh, of course, also science, we use some ontology. So, for example, in science, you can have a molecule, you can have an experiment, you can have a test, uh, you can have some validation protocols, whatever. And uh, these things are normally concepts, really, a, a description of the domain that we are dealing with. If I think about protocols, for example, in DAOs and Web3, we see... Very little convergence. So it seems like everybody creates its own protocol. Do you think that uh, we are set to see the emergence of protocols that uh, make it easier to share data uh, about what's going on in a way that is much more shareable? So essentially, think about, for example, two players in the space. If they want to collaborate on certain experiments, First of all, they need to share their ontologies. I'm very faithful that, uh, for example, new protocols can create the architecture of incentives for maybe two or more organizations, of course, to kind of co own the protocol itself and maybe be rewarded for using this shared ontology. I don't know. I'm thinking about, for example, protocols that can reward uh, applications and users for for their usage. Do you think this is uh, something that? uh, is on the radar for the design uh, community. What are you seeing happening in this space uh, of uh, ontological convergence and, and shared uh, domain models?
0: First and foremost, the Web three community culturally is very, very collaborative. I think that's one of the exciting aspects of the space, and and exciting for a lot of the early adopters of the space is that they. Individual contributors can join multiple projects. Like, if you look at Twitter bios, you know, it's more common now for people to be a part of multiple DAOs versus, you know, traditional, what we'll say, Web2 corporate structure. You can't work at Facebook and Google, right? And I think that's really exciting. Like, it is like a community principle in the sense that, like, if you're not collaborative, but you're in this space, there's an acronym like not going to make it, right? So it, it is somehow like incentivized, I think, uh, just by the culture and, and the nature of who was attracted to Web three early and how that's being maintained. As for the kind of convergence of projects, I think that's a good point, and we we have seen. With the early space, you know, often parallel projects that have similar goals. And I'm hopeful, at least within the DSci community, that some of these projects will join forces. So there was just an announcement that this one DAO that was focused on peer review of science uh, called SciDAO joined with another DAO, uh, Contract Research DAO. And I think that's. An exciting signal that we're seeing people recognize that they have a shared goal and that they can be stronger together and, and, and go after that goal. So, I think we'll see more of that. And I think it's, it's just part of the, the culture of this community. And I think when you talk to people who have started some of these different projects, I think they're certainly excited to collaborate and work together to solve these problems especially within this kind of scientific publishing sector that I wrote about recently.
1: Besides healthcare, do you think there are other science branches that uh, uh, may enjoy uh, most uh, uh, of uh, this high uh, potential? You know, I'm thinking about you know, uh, creating new materials or things like that. Uh, maybe you spotted some interesting projects in, in different spaces, uh, which are not so usual suspects.
0: Another sector that's been forming uh, is the regenerative finance community or refi, which includes a lot of people interested in climate science. And there's now this kind of re regenerative science sector as well. You know, environmentalists, they are people who are interested in understanding the environment and protecting it and conserving it. So I'm pretty excited about some of the collaborative efforts there. And at least within the DSI wiki, um, I think we're going to include a a refi, resi sector soon uh, as part of that wiki and understanding that space more. And there's a lot of, you know, shared leaders across the space there. What is up
1: for you in the future? Are you coming back to the podcast, starting new series, uh, new projects? Um?
0: Yeah, so up next, um, I work as a bench scientist at a, a biotech company. As for podcasting, I'm, I'm going to be returning to my show, Lady Scientist Podcast, and interviewing women scientists there. Um, I love featuring the work of, of women scientists. I think they're kind of underrepresented in the, in the podcast space. I also produced a show, Ultra Rare, the podcast, where I interviewed some of the leaders in this DSI sector. So make sure to check that out um, if you're interested in learning more from, from some, some of the early leaders in the space. And yeah, I continue to write on this topic uh, through various venues. So I'm always kind of doing background research and, and collecting my thoughts through, through my writing.
1: Can you share a couple of breadcrumbs for our listeners? So something that they really should be looking into. And again, not something necessarily DSI, uh, but something that you feel you want to, to share.
0: Um, so in the, in the DSI wiki at the end, I have uh, some book recommendations for people breaking into this space who want to understand it a little bit more. And um, there's two books I love to recommend, Reinventing Discovery by Michael Nielsen and Working in Public by Nadia Egbal. So both of them explore kind of flavors of the DSi space. In Reinventing Discovery, Michael gets into how collective communities worked on a a chess match, a famous chess match, as well as these like uh, grand challenges in science. So I think that's kind of a neat example of case studies that we expand on within this DAO space. And then working in public focuses on the open source software communities and how those communities are managed and run and, and achieve different things. So both great, uh, great books that I recommend folks check out. Uh,
1: Justin, thank you so much. That was uh, an amazing conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun to, to chat about
1: and uh, and uh, we'll be sure to mention all the your writings your important writings links to to the podcasts you run and uh, the wiki and so on so that uh, our listeners can catch up with this new space that hopefully we open in front of them and um, uh, check out uh, the show notes uh, of this uh, episode on uh, boundaryless.io slash resources slash podcast. You will find uh, um, uh, Jocelyn uh, episode featured there. And uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, like always, listen to me, try to think boundaryless.
0: finally like a great use case for web 3 and uh, uh, good to go into depth on this very important and interesting uh, field of decentralized science Uh, honestly i think this is really massive um, when you think about uh, you know transforming and disrupting uh, an industry, uh, let's say, that has still have all these gatekeepers uh, in place.
1: Yeah, I, I think I was a bit concerned about going into that vertical because this is not something we usually do. But uh, I agree that this is a space where we really see the impacts of decentralizing some of the uh, governance mechanisms and uh, funding mechanisms and rep- reputation and you know whatever so it's really been a great shot and uh, you know maybe we need to do more verticals some, from time to time.